Hello, welcome. And if you're just about to get on that plane to throw away your presidency, wait a minute and listen to the film file. The film show by Film Geeks for Film Geeks. Hello, <laughs> hey, welcome to the film file. I'm uh, one half of your host today. And I'm about a quarter of the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I was very, you're not, you're half the man that you used to be. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And welcome to the film file. So here we are with another episode as we uh, uh, move swiftly into the ever-changing world of 2021. As we record this show, uh, a new presidency starts, uh, an old presidency finishes, and we have another great show for you. In this week's show, Andy, what have we got? Well, we've got our usual roundup of the news, and we've got a packed second half this week. There's a lot of um, films that we're going to be exploring. We're going to have a look at Rear Window, the Alfred Hitchcock classic. Lee is going to talk about Blythe Spirit. I've seen Spree, Songbird, and Outside the Wire, and I have something to say on all three of them. And then we've both got a lot to say about WandaVision. So, um, quickly, I'll ask you how you are then. How have you been? A lot better. That's uh, good. I- I'm still not getting out of the house because you've seen outside the window. It's miserable. Uh, but I'm finding things to keep me engaged and keep me entertained. And I'm, I'm finding focus again. And that's, that's the most important thing at this point in time for me is I need something to just keep my mind going. I had a, an online gaming session for some board games with some of the crew from work this weekend. And it was great just to catch up with them and chat with them while playing games and a, a, a great um uh, a great run on sunday's uh, uh mos site yeah the the mtos is uh, is building up quite nicely at the moment uh, we had a quite a good weekend and one of the fans of mtos who gets involved each week is starting up a spin-off of it called horror talk on tuesdays hashtag htot which starts next week so if you like your online twitter chats at 8pm every Tuesday night, he's aiming to do a horror-themed 10 questions for discovering opinions. So I'm going to be checking that one out. Excellent. It was a good, it was a good one last week. I, I contributed myself to it. So as Andy <laughs> said, he's been, uh, he's been highly focused. And what you've been highly focused on, Andy, and that is the news. Uh, so news-wise this week, again, there's not really a lot of major news, but there's a lot of little nuggets and little, because things are already in production, but there's not a lot of announcements of things going into production. But let's start with my my weekly positivity, as it's now become. Yes, you're a changed man this year. I, I, we talked uh, very briefly last year, um, last week about having New Year's resolutions. And, and while this isn't one, because we did say we'd review them at the end of the year. It certainly feels like one. <laughs> it feels like I've just taken a whole different stance. And I'm talking about your friend and mine, Zack Snyder, and his Snyder Cut of Justice League, which he's revealed via his interaction on Vero, which is the platform that he prefers to interact with his fan base. And you've got to respect Snyder for his devotion and interaction with his fans. He loves chatting with them, sharing insider details, gossiping with them and taking feedback from them. Kudos to him from that. And that's the positive aspect that I'm going to give this week. Uh, But he revealed that the Snyder Cut of Justice League is now going to be a single four hour movie. Okay, that's a lot of investment, a lot of investment of time for anyone, four hours, rather than as opposed to 
as we'd been talking about it, a four-episode series, perhaps. Yeah, the reaction online has been very mixed, with some folks saying that four hours is far too long for one sitting. But when you consider at the same time this weekend, some of those same people were moaning that all the episodes of WandaVision didn't drop at the same time for them to binge. It it makes you wonder, do you want to watch four hours of stuff or not? You can't moan that you can't binge something whilst also moaning that a film's going to be too long because four hours is only long if the film's not good. If the film is good, that four hours flies by. I've sat through, I mean, look at your old classics like Ben-Hur, which was three hours 20. Yeah, yeah approximately um you've got 10 commandments which when it was showing on tv it was it was basically took up four hours with the adverts and yet you were happy to sit through them and it didn't feel that long because you were engaged with them i've sat through 90 minute films that have felt like they've been four hours because they've been so bad so i'm sure that the fan base that snyder's aiming for with this and it is more a, a treat for his fan base Let's yeah. be honest. This is something that we're going to be rushing to see. We will go and see it and we'll make our mind up and see what he wanted to do and we will review it. But this film isn't made for us. This film is made as a fond farewell to his fan base who support Yeah, him. I mean, it feels it feels very fanish. Yeah. I, I will, of course, watch it. I'd be interested to see it. I certainly won't be sitting in for four hours to watch it. I think it's different. If you saw it in a theatre, four hours is different than sitting and watching four hours at home in addition he's planning to give it a limited cinema routing as well especially in the territories that don't have hbo max he's very keen to get this as a cinematic outing so whilst this hasn't been confirmed from the hbo max side of it and the warner side of it he's got quite a lot of say in how this this is getting done he's got a lot of creative control and distribution control around it and it wouldn't surprise me if we do see it getting because the hbo the films are getting released on cinemas and hbo max at the same time anyway so this was just be taking something the other way around and taking something that was planned for hbo max and putting it on the big screen at the same time so it's 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 interesting i think it fits better to be a film because it was planned as a film in the first place splitting it up into four episodes you've got the problem of where do you cut where do you break where do you move it to how do you edit this now he can just focus on making it the film that he intended it to be from day one so Let's see. Yeah, I mean, it always comes back down to the fact: is it going to be? A, is it going to be worthy of our time? Is it going to be a good film? And until we see it, we just don't know. We can speculate all we like, but we know we're not in the speculation game here at the Film File. What we are about is the news. So that's your uh, New Year's resolution. What else have we got? So, as you know from last week, in order to get the balance so that I can talk nice about Zach, there needs to be some negativity. And thankfully, uh, Ray Fisher is still there to provide <laughs> it for me. Warners and Ray Fisher are still at it. They're still going at loggerheads. Warners are backing Hamada after the petulant actor's latest outburst stoked more flames. His latest stoking of the flames, Fisher's latest stoking of the flames, came in the form of a two-page statement with a lot of words and not actually much content. Explain, because I heard the I heard the clip that he had, uh, an audio. Yes, the the audio clip. The, the the big statement that he gave goes on about like uh, there was discrimination, there was racism, blah 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 blah. He was right all along, and this audio clip proves that he's right. And the audio clip doesn't actually say anything aside from how the independent investigator into the complaints agrees that he was cooperative. Yes. Despite that has nothing to do with the latest accusations of Hamada being as racist as Jeff Johns, Fisher seems utterly convinced it proves he's right. And as you can imagine, the legion of the hashtag fans are following suit and are calling for the head of Walter Hamada and for him to be kicked out of Warners. 
There's nothing that he's given content-wise. There's no evidence that Fisher has given. And that's the problem that I have with this. I'm not saying that he's incorrect. I'm not saying that he wasn't harassed. I'm saying that everything that he's thrown out there so far has nothing to do with what he's making accusations about. No. And it just, it feels like he's just throwing mud because he's not got his own way. And I do think... At this point in time, I genuinely think that this is just because his cyborg character isn't getting tucked forwards and this is him spitting his dummy out. There will be a stage when this will have to end because it's not a million miles away from what we've seen uh, Trump do as regards uh, the election. It's, it's say yeah. as much as you will uh, and hopefully some of it will stick and, and those who are your, your followers will engage with it and those who aren't your followers will we'll simply just walk away from it. Uh, Warner's CEO and Sarnoff has responded to Fisher's latest statement and that audio clip to say, I believe in Walter Hamada and that he did not impede or interfere in the investigation. Furthermore, I have full confidence in the investigation's process and findings. Walter is a well-respected leader, known by his colleagues, peers and me as a man of great character and integrity. So Warner's are standing by Hamada, which... So they should, because there's no evidence against him. If Fisher genuinely has these concerns, if he genuinely has this evidence, well, why don't you take it down, the investigators? Why don't you get the investigators back involved? Why don't you get them to back you up rather than posting an audio clip that, did you let them know that you were recording that conversation, mate? Yeah, that, that, the that first one. thing that came to mind when I read that was, um, you know, you didn't actually say that you were uh, recording anybody, which as far as I know, uh, is, yeah, is there's, there's legalities around that, especially now that he's broadcast it. There's a lot of issues in there. And like I keep saying that the biggest pity about this is Fisher is making himself unemployable because now he's showing future potential employers that he will record every conversation that you have yeah. with him. No one's going to want to work with him. As you can expect, any attempt to suggest that there's no evidence when you talk about this online results in an online toxic community branding you as a racist because you need to believe Fisher despite there's no the fact there's yeah. no evidence. It's it's creating a toxic element again of hashtaggers. And the problem with these hashtaggers is they've already shown that they can get their own way with getting a film made. Now they think that they can just keep giving hashtags for anything to force a company to bow to their will. And I've actually seen comments from some of them saying like, um, Walter Hamada will get sacked if we all get behind this hashtag. I believe in Ray Fisher. It's like, really? So you are you have no evidence, but you're just going to force someone to lose their job. Yeah. I'm glad that Warners are standing by Hamada. Okay, moving on. Something a little bit more pleasurable, perhaps. What have we got? Well, rare news here, but Godzilla vs. Kong has been brought closer. It's now going to open on the 26th of March rather than the early April slot that it was originally booked into. And we are they're getting on HBO Max in the States, but we're not getting a theatrical release in the UK, are we? Well, we will, if cinemas are allowed to be open yeah. by then. I mean, it's all... It, it, Everything in the UK now, cinema-wise, is all down to basically the government allowing us to get out of the tier system or acknowledging that when we go back to a tier system after lockdown, that actually cinemas are quite well controlled and should be allowed to still remain open in tier three with their control measures in place. So whilst there is an international cinematic release on that same day, and it will also get US cinema release, HBO Max is clearly where they're mainly going to be targeting with this. But it's interesting that they brought it early. They brought it early because the end of March is pretty much empty. It gives them the whole lot of that March and the lead in th lead into Easter 
and then the whole of the Easter periods to you know make as much money as they can from subscriptions and from the limited cinemas that are open worldwide. And most importantly, and most effectively, the rather lucrative Chinese market has completely empty slots for that three-week period. There's a chance then that, that we could still get it, depending on, on how the world's turning out at this stage. Yes, we're all down to how we are, which, you know, seeing the news yesterday where they're suggesting that they need to extend furlough for the whole lot of the summer doesn't bode well for the chances of some of us being back to work anytime soon. But I'm still optimistic. I'm optimistic that by the end of March, we hopefully will be opening again. And I think it'd be great if we open for the back end of March with Godzilla vs. Kong. What a great thing to open. Yeah, I saw a tiny, tiny little bit on the uh, HBO sizzle reel that they put out, which had a couple of other things in. And it looked it looks very, very, very cool. It does what it says on the tin. It's two monsters kicking seven bells out of each other. Now, if you want things kicking seven bells out of each other, Another film which is doing the cinema and HBO Max is Mortal Kombat. And hey, I'm a big fan of this franchise. I've mentioned, I'm sure I've mentioned a few times how I love the original film and I love the game. I didn't mind the original film. I thought it stayed true to what it was about. Um, exactly. It, it, it wasn't particularly taxing. It was colourful. It had a great deal of fan service. You know what? I, I remember enjoying it. I, I never saw it again. Uh, I've not got any need to ever see it again, but that doesn't matter. I thought it, I thought it worked a treat. I never saw the sequels. I only saw the, the, the first one by Paul Anderson. Well, that, that first film gets watched by me at least once a year. The sequel, not very good. The TV spin-offs, not too bad. But that first film was great, and I've been excited about this new reboot of the franchise for a while, especially when they said, you know what, this is going to be... Um, a more R-rated one, so it's going to tap more into the actual lore of Mortal Kombat. Well, this film is going to draw upon that lore and focuses on the rivalry between Scorpion and Sub-Zero, two fan-favourite characters, and it promises to be bloody brutal, throwing in the usual characters swept into this tournament. But we had the first images released of it this week from Entertainment Weekly, who had an exclusivity on six or seven different photo shots, and those photo shots made me salivate with desire. <laughs> oh, the characters look great. It looks striking. I can't wait to see an actual trailer. And hints have been saying that there's going to be a trailer dropping pretty soon because the film is due out on April the 12th. So we've not got long to go. A trailer has to be imminent. Rest assured, once that trailer lands, we'll be recording an episode the next week and my (laughs) head will explode. (laughs) Have you heard this news about uh, a Willy Wonka prequel for 2023? Yeah, I've heard rumors that they were wanting to do a prequel i mean i think the rumors go back a couple of years and i was always very skeptical it's like oh, really didn't we already have some elements of that prequel stuff in tim burton's misstep of a film i mean yeah. i'm not saying it's a bad film it's a misstep there's some great elements in burton's film but the enhancing of the prequel aspect didn't work and it made me shrug and go ah do i care well i'm sure you're going to tell me the news that is going to make me care yeah, well, whether this is a prequel to the Gene Wilder, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971, or the 2005 Tim Burton version that starred uh, Johnny Depp, who knows? There's no casting being announced or anything. But what they have announced is uh, a director, and that's Paul King. Where do you know Paul King from? Paul King gave us the fabulous Paddington films. You see, and now you make me care about this franchise. Now you make me want this in my life, because... When I remember when the Paddington film was getting made, 
and that first trailer came out, I looked it, looked at it, and I was straight away sold into it. I was like, that's got the charm, it's got the comedy, it's got the fun, it's got the the element of Paddington that I want. And then when I watched the film, I fell in love with it. And then the sequel came, and I was worried that is it going to have sequelitis where it doesn't feel as good? And it was better. Oh, he brings so much love and attention to it. Let's see him play with um, the character of Wonka. It had so much charm, didn't they? They were so well done. Fabulous humour, just just really, really calm, enjoyable, all about the story, all about the characters. Who would have thought that the two Paddington films would be some of the best children's films of the last 10 years. Absolutely marvellous films. If, if if you're out there and you've not watched the Paddington films, then really you need to do yourself a favour and spend an afternoon with some marmalade sandwiches and just sit and watch them. But let's see what he can do with Wonka. I'm now very intrigued with this film. Yes. I can't wait to see. I'm a bit concerned that they're just calling it Wonka because I can picture the graffiti changing the posters already. (laughs) See, (laughs) I never thought of that because I'm an innocent in this world, Andy, as you very well know. I'm not. (laughs) I completely understand why Pac-Man was called Pac-Man and not Puck-Man. So I'm not, I'm convinced that we will start to see a lot of posters for someone's willy being, anyway. Um, Let's move (laughs) on to Marvel news. Quick Marvel roundup this week. So Spider-Man 3 which has home somewhere in the title. So it's something, something home, something, something. I don't know. Well, it's filming now. We know it's filming. And reports have come out from set saying that Charlie Cox has actually been spotted on set. I saw this. In fact, I might even go one better when some of his filming has actually been completed, which is really interesting because I started on season three of uh, Daredevil last night. I, for some reason, I just didn't get around to it. There was, became a big, big hole in all the stuff that I was watching uh, on, on Marvel's Netflix shows. Yeah. And I just thought how good Charlie Cox is as, as, as Matt Murdock and how he is Matt Murdock. Yeah. And, I, and I, I, my neat thing last week was, was the current take on, um, on Daredevil. He just looks like the character and he acts exactly as I always thought the character would be and, and absolutely perfect. So... The question is, does this open the door to him playing Daredevil again? Does it open the door, as, as Figia seems to um, hinted at, that the Defenders could come back? Yeah. Um, let's hope so, because uh, just to see him playing Matt Murdock or Daredevil or, or what is going to happen in this Spider-Man film, it just makes perfect sense for me. In the past, there's been actors who've appeared on sets and then not been in the actual film because it's just been, they've done a set visit. They know someone who works on the production. They're a best friend with one of the other actors or best friend with the director. And they're just hanging about. Because of the quarantine process that is in place, there's no way that that's the case this time. Absolutely, Because there's no way that he flew over to Australia to sit in a hotel room for two weeks just to go and visit one of his mates on set one day and then go, go away. That's not happening. So he's definitely a part of the film. If indeed these reports from set are saying are true in that he was there. But... Yeah, it's exciting. In related news with the lockdown, Sydney, etc., etc., and filming for Marvel, the Daily Telegraph have reported that Matt Damon has arrived in Sydney for the mandatory two weeks before joining Thor Love and Thunder. A, we didn't see this one coming on our uh, Marvel bingo cards. <laughs> also, it opens the questions, is it a cameo? Is he reprising what he did in Ragnarok? Or are we getting Matt Damon playing a character in this movie? And therefore, which character is he playing? I mean, you wouldn't put it past Taika Waititi to just have him pop up as a cameo again, because he did it so great having him 
pop up as an actor representing a reenaction of events of the previous films. But again, the lockdown process of two weeks, would someone of a star nature like Matt Damon go along, sit in a hotel room for two weeks to just go for one day on set for a quick cameo? So I think that we might, it might be the same character. He might just be one of the last surviving members of Asgard in that new community that got set up. And so he's now an integral part of the film as a result. Or he might be joining Chris Pratt, Dave Bautista and Tessa Thompson in extended support roles as additional characters all linked to this saga. Whatever's happening, I can't wait. (laughs) On the back end of that, Andy, uh, Karen Gillan has just flown out to Australia as well to reprise a role as Nebula in Thor, Love and Thunder. Can't wait. So excited. I mean, I I love everything that Taika manages to give out. I thought that Thor Ragnarok was perfect. On on some of what we talked about, on the back end of what you're talking about, Spider-Man is the fact that uh, Sony are already wanting to do a, a fourth film as well. So fingers crossed, it depends, I guess, on lots and lots of reasons. Are they going to do it with Marvel? Because we had all that shenanigans uh, last year. Was it the year before? Who knows anymore? All all the years have merged into one. Another bit of casting news is that the Moon Knight series has now cast Ethan Hawke. As its villain, I believe. Yes. Though it's not announced who the villain is, but Ethan Hawke is joining the cast. Now, I've always got a lot of time for Ethan Hawke. Don't like everything he does but I always find him an interesting actor. Speculation shall commence from this point forward as to what character he's going to be playing and will all be proven wrong when it properly gets announced in about two months' time. Moving on to other Disney-related products and Disenchanted, the long-awaited sequel to 2008's Enchanted. Well, it's long-awaited by me. I've been wanting this sequel ever since that first film. It will not only see Amy Adams return as Giselle, but also Patrick Dempsey has now signed on to be back as Robert, the one true love that the fairy tale princess married at the end. Uh, shooting for this starts in spring and colour me excited because Enchanted was, well, it was enchanting. You got me because I loved Enchanted. I thought Amy Adams, it was a star-making role for her. I know she'd been in other things, but it, 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 was, it was just an absolutely fantastically funny, <laughs> uh, a unique take on the whole Disney princess thing. And I thought it was, it was so unique. I look forward to whatever they're going to do with the sequel. And I can see room for the sequel. I can see how that character can come back and how they can they can expand her story. That's one that I'll be keeping a lookout for on Disney Plus next year. Uh, David O. Russell has his next film lined up for 20th Century Studios and Regency. And I believe we reported a couple of months ago that he already had Christian Bale, Margot Robbie and John David Washington involved. Well, recently, he's added Rami Malek and Zoe Saldana to the cast and not content with such star power in the film he's now added <sighs> take a breath robert de niro mike myers timothy oliphant michael shannon chris rock anya taylor joy andrea riseborough matthias schoenarts and alessandro nivola wow he's just gone down the entire casting list and went i want everyone <laughs> I, want, I want a bit of everything please somewhere in amongst all those names there must be space for the plot and a film title but nobody knows any of it yet mm. all that we know is that that much star power in a david o russell film that's intriguing he's one of those directors that the actors like to work with and he's worked yeah. with some of those names before i think he's i think he's a director who gives his actors a lot to do yeah and that's why they like him it intrigued me It's an original idea for the story, and it's already shooting, apparently. So let's round up with a few bullet points of quick news. Next month, we already know that Star Plus is coming to Disney Plus, allowing more adult content to arrive on the service. 
And whilst that news made us excited, nothing's made me as excited as the news of what's coming on February the 19th to Disney+. Plus, Which is? All five seasons of the classic Muppet show. <laughs> well, I, you know I'm a big Alice Cooper fan. Um, one of my earliest Alice Cooper memories is uh, him on, on the Muppet show. Yeah. Um, doing Welcome to My Nightmare. Yeah, I mean, the variety show format that it adopted was hilarious little sketches, but was well known for the celebrity cameos and some of the most bizarre celebrity cameos that you would not have foreseen. This was a staple of my childhood, watching this every weekend. And I cannot wait to revisit classic Muppets because as much as the Muppets are still going today, I don't think they've quite been as good on TV as they were back then. And this is one to revisit. Christopher Nolan, Steve McQueen, Ridley Scott, Edgar Wright, Danny Boyle, Paul Greengrass, Matthew Vaughan. They're amongst the names of filmmakers who've written to Rishi Sunak, the UK Chancellor, in a bid to save cinemas to, to, in their words, ensure that future generations can enjoy the magic of cinema. Good on them. And, and that's what it's needed. And we've been talking about this. There has been a lot with the music industry where big names from the music industry have, have, have come out to say how important uh, an industry it is and how important it is to 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 the finances of, of, of the UK and the rest of the world. I'm so pleased to see some hard hitters coming out of the film industry to back us up. Yeah, and We've the, been on about this for, for such a long time. The pushing for funding and benefits to be given across the cinema industry. Because there was some given out to small independents, but it's the big giants that are suffering. I mean, Cineworld, as we've reported multiple times, are suffering. And current rumours have that they will be looking at closing some sites permanently if things don't get better. So sad. And, if, and like we've said multiple times, if the giant goes, it brings everyone else down with it. Yeah. So the whole industry needs something to help prop it up. to Because when, when things re- reopen, it's not going to be reopening to the business levels that it was. And it's going to take time to build it back up. So we need that support. So great to see such big names getting behind it and really getting it out there. Uh, Ghostbusters, Ivan Reitman cried when Jason showed him the film. Apparently, and for the right reasons as well, rather than he was upset by what his son had done with the with the franchise. We all cried when we saw Feig's version. So, um, yeah, he, he's cried for the right reasons. It's tapped into the heart of the franchise that he had. And it's, yeah, th- this film should have been out last year. I, I'm looking forward to it and knowing that Ivan Reitman full, fully, fully loves what's been done with it. He's sort of passed on the mantle to, to his son and uh, tremendously so. Jason Reitman's done some superb work. It just seemed a no-brainer when you think about it that he went on and, and directed a film that his, his father, well, it basically made his father's career. I know he, he did tons and tons of other work, but we always think of Ghostbusters when we think of Ivan Reitman initially. And the final bit of news, Liam Neeson has been doing promo around his latest action outing, which has done quite well at the US Open Cinemas uh, this weekend, The Marksman. And he's hinted, that not only is he thinking of not playing the action hero soon, because he's been citing the fact that he's finding most of his on-screen opponents are less than half his age these days, although he does specify that he absolutely enjoys being this action hero that people never expected him to be. But he's also suggested that he may be in the running to be the next Leslie Nielsen. When we say Leslie Nielsen, what do we mean exactly by that, Andy? When you say Leslie Nielsen, what one role comes to mind straight away? Well, that would be Frank Drebin. Exactly. Frank Drebin of Police Squad and the Naked Gun series of films. Police Squad being the six-episode series that Which sparked up the whole idea. 
Oh, I they were I, so good. I rewatched them all last month and I was in hysterics again. Uh, but Paramount and Seth MacFarlane have been bandying around an idea of bringing the Naked Gun series back for a while. And according to Neeson, he's been approached by Seth MacFarlane because he's worked with him on a few projects. It was in A Million Ways to Die in the West. He's also provided his voice on Family Guy on a few occasions, and he's also popped up in the Orville. So he gets on well with McFarlane. He works well with him, and he's been approached to contemplate whether or not he wants to take the lead role and be the next Frank Drebin, which, as Neeson says, it will either finish his career or bring it in another direction, which I can get what he says about that, because I'm in mixed feelings on this bit of news. Yeah, and it depends how they do it. And you know, it's it's not one of those where there is a sense of, of natural continuity with it, with these movies. If if they're smart and they play to the parody idea, which they always do, then they're they're a, well. I can think of a few slick ways that they could make that happen. And, and you've got to remember that Leslie Nielsen always played it straight, and that's yes. why it was so funny. I think it's inspired. I think that there's a lot that they can do with the Naked Gun franchise. I th- the, the part of me against it is it, it's against it simply because of my love for how Leslie Nielsen did it. And it's the worry that it will it will not be as good and it will damage the brand. The same way that the Steve Martin Pink Panther films. Now, they're not bad films if you look at them on their own. But when you compare them alongside the original Pink Panther films, they are absolutely atrocious. And there's the worry that this will get unfairly compared to it and, and thus damage the brand. Let's see. I've got a lot of confidence in McFarlane. I do like his work. Even Million Don't Ways to Die in the West, which wasn't a great film, I had a lot of fun with. And I think he's got the right kind of comedy chops for a naked gun parody effect. Let's yeah. see. No, I agree. I, I think he, he could do it. And I think just because we've not seen him do a lot of a lot of comedy doesn't mean that he can't do it. In A Million Ways to Die in the West, Liam Neeson was actually pretty damn good. And he was playing it really straight as the bad guy in there. It was everything around him that was being comical. So he's the right kind of casting. And that basically has rounded up the news for this week. And there you go, folks. There's the news. If you're enjoying the show and you stuck with us this long, there's probably no reason that you're not enjoying it. Then please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so at Twitter at Filmfile UK. And you can also catch us on Instagram, Filmfile UK, or email us podcast at filmfile.uk. There's, there's no reason why you're not getting in touch with us, is there? Come on. <laughs> Drop us a line. We'll look forward to hearing from you. If you've got any suggestions, any films you want to cover. And in our new feature, or should I say, return to an old feature, we're going to do some deep dives into classic movies. And this week, we're talking about Rear Window. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts, so lonely that even death seems like a friend. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. A genius or insane? 
This is the traveling salesman and his invalid wife. Out of their arguments and nagging comes a weird kind of love. Miss Torso, the body beautiful, that is, viewed from a safe distance. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock, it was released in 1954 and it stars the great James Stewart, the effervescent Grace Kelly, Wendell Corey, Thelma Ritter and Raymond Burr. Considered by many filmgoers, critics and scholars alike, including us, to be one of Hitchcock's best. Uh, and it's one of the greatest films ever made. It received four Academy Award nominations, was ranked number 42 on the American Film Institute's 100 Years of 100 Movies list, and it was added to the United States National Film Registry in the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And you know what? It's my favourite Hitchcock film. As you know, because I've been mentioning it over the past few shows, I've been working through the Hitchcock collection. That I've, ha I've had it on Blu-ray for about four years, and I've not got round to like really working through it. I'd, obviously, I'd seen the important ones. I'd seen like Psycho, Vertigo, and this Rear Window. But there's a lot of his films that I hadn't seen. So revisiting the ones that I'd seen alongside the ones that I'd not seen, it was great to get that balance of Hitchcock. And yes, this is, this is top-tier Hitchcock. This is the best Hitchcock. It is. It's, it's all the elements that you love about Hitchcock. And it's all the elements that, that why he was a master of what he does. So the story for those who, who've, who've not seen it, and shame on you, professional photographer LB Jeff Jeffries breaks his leg while getting an action shot at an auto race. He's confined to his New York apartment. He spends his time looking out of the rear window observing the neighbours. He begins to suspect that a man across the courtyard may have murdered his wife. Jeff enlists the help of his high society fashion consultant girlfriend, uh, Lisa Fremont, and his visiting nurse, Stella, to investigate. Uh, and as you said, uh, Andy, this is, this is the, the epitome of a, of a classic, classic film. It, it's witty. Uh, it, it's thrilling. It, it's got Hitchcock's uh, technical expertise. It draws upon some of the elements of the sense of claustrophobia that he pulled in from The Lodger and the static confinement of Lifeboat. And it's got that sort of, uh, also a sense of, of what he did with Rope. James Stewart, as ever, you can't say that James Stewart is not at his best because he's always at his best. He has that ability to be a great leading man and a great everyman. And, and he scenes with his socialite girlfriend, Grace Kelly, who's eager to marry him, but Stewart has doubts. They have such a fantastic on-screen chemistry that just gives it the heart to the film. It's, it's smart. It has that sense of, of uh, underlying tension. The way that, that Hitchcock uh, explores through James Stewart, the other neighbours that live opposite him, and the courtyard is a kind of a mirror of his soul. There are people around, predicaments represent different sides of his and to lesser extent her personality and offer glimpses of potential past, present and future selves. Uh, not always flattering. There's the newlyweds who are constantly... Um, <laughs> Drawing the blinds. <laughs> there's Miss Torso, a beautiful woman who entertains many suitors. There are childless, somewhat pathetic, seemingly middle-class couple. Uh, and they all just represent of, of, of his psyche, which I didn't get the first time I saw it, and I had to, to re-watch it. And then you just see the layers on this, and and 
And while the performances are, are unflashy, they're just superb and hold it all together. James Stewart is fantastically cast, as he always was, as an everyman. And that's what makes it work is, as a lead character, is because we are the everyman watching a film. If the person who we're watching is an everyman in a situation that's out of their control, it's easier to latch onto them and follow them. And the true genius of this is in using this single location using yeah. we're we're in that bedroom with him we're in that apartment with him just looking out the window and hitchcock's use of just panning the camera across the neighborhood buildings as we see little snippets of mundane lives being played out so we start piecing together everyone's life every aspect of everyone's life that james stewart is piecing as well so when that murder might or might not have taken place because we don't actually see anything we are in the same situation that we're maybe piecing the puzzle together wrong as well and it makes you doubt it and that's the true genius of it is whilst you do suspect that a murder's took place you doubt all your suspicions because of the way that it's framed even when grace kelly's lisa goes to explore the suspicious apartment we see it from the window opposite so we have our view obstructed which leads us to worry even more about how things are going to play out. How tense is not the word. At this point in the film, despite the fact I've seen it before, you're still holding your breath. You're still edge of the seat. You're still biting whatever nails you've got left. I mean, I'd, I'd gone down to the stubs of my fingers by the end of this film. <laughs> it's such top-tier filmmaking, and it's the perfect, perfect showpiece for what Hitchcock could do altogether. I mean, there's comedy elements in there, but it's not... Hitchcock, I found that when I was rewatched all the Hitchcock films, that when he actually did what he considered a proper comedy, it didn't quite work. He wasn't a comic director because he tried to add a, th a tense thrill to his comedies. But in this, when he put in little nuggets of comedy in amongst the tension, this is where he really paid it off. And even the payoffs of all the mundane lives that we've been watching, because you get involved in them, you start to care about every one of these characters in these opposite windows. And some of the payoffs are heartfelt. Some of them are uh, just simple. Oh, well, they get on with their everyday life. The, the poor married, like recently married man, you start to feel for him like on the third time that he's cut closing the blinds, getting called back in. You start to think, oh man, what have you let yourself in for? And <laughs> even like the, the, the very flirty woman, ballerina, directly opposite, her little payoff gave me a little chuckle. Everything is a great payoff and everything feels satisfying. It doesn't feel like there's loose threads hanging over. It feels like a fully complete film. I'm telling you, if you looked up the description of perfection in the dictionary, all you need to see is a single shot from this film, and that's that would describe it. Yeah, Hitchcock was at the top of his game. He'd been a, a filmmaker for several decades now, and there's absolutely no fuss in in his direction on it. It's 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 all there to get the best out of tension, the the best out of the the incredible set design of the courtyard. It's it's a magnificent looking set which is, is both realistic and, and, and incredibly artificial. It feels like a studio set, but that adds something to it. Um, yeah. It adds, it adds a, another cinematic, unique element to it. Hitchcock just knew what he wanted out of this film, and he gets it. He knows, he knows where the humour is. He knows where the romance is. He knows where the thrills are. Um, and, 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 and I absolutely agree. When you think of film as a work of art, then Rear Window is an absolute work of art. It's a perfect five-star film. It's top-tier filmmaking. It's the second perfect film in my all-time favourite films. And the other film, coincidentally, 
has uh, James Stewart in it, and that's It's a Wonderful Life. This is a film that I put off going back to rewatch because it's been about a decade and a half, maybe two decades since I last watched it. And I put it off because I was worried that it wasn't as good as I remembered. But having rewatched it, I can't wait to rewatch it again because it was better than I remembered. And you said to yourself that like it was when you went to revisit it that you got so much more from it and you started to spot more aspects. And that's what's so good about it is that you can watch it surface level as a simple story about a man looking out the window and spot see something that might be a murder and investigates. Or you can dissect it. And this is a film to dissect and love and really enjoy. Absolute brilliant. Interestingly enough, uh, it's been it was touched upon by other filmmakers. Brandy Palmer used elements of it as he always did with uh, Body Double, and Philip Noyce's 1993 film Sliver had aesthetic and mm. certain ideas of the themes of voyeurisms and reworking some of those elements that, that Hitchcock did. There was a remake, interestingly enough, a TV movie in 1998 with an updated storyline. Uh, in which the lead character is paralysed and lives in a high-tech home. Uh, that starred Christopher Reeve, who himself was paralysed due to his horse-riding accident. Also starred Daryl Hannah, Robert Forster. There was also the 2007 uh, thriller Disturbia by DJ Caruso, which starred Shia LaBeouf in an early role. And that took the whole concept of Rear Window, him playing a teenager placed under house arrest who witnesses a serial killer on the loose. So it, it's a theme that's been re-explored, but I don't think it's been matched to this date. It's been re-explored really well, but it's never been matched. Uh, I've got a tendency to agree with you wholeheartedly and fully, and that's Rear Window, an absolute classic, and that the word classic was designed for. Okay, so we're going to look at some reviews. While we've not had a chance to get into the cinema, unfortunately, due to, you know, that little old thing called COVID, has it now changed to COVID 2021 yet? It's bound to at some point, which leads us into uh, a segue to one of the films that Andy's <laughs> going to be talking about. I'm just going to kick off with my review as that hit over the weekend. And that's a new version of Blythe Spirit starring Dan Stevens, Judy Dench and Leslie Mann. Mesdames et messieurs, bonsoir. I broke through to the other side. I'd like you to conduct a seance at my home. It'll be the perfect inspiration for my new screenplay. Thursday. The moon is full and we must harness its power. Is there anyone on the other side that you think of? Elvira. His dead ex-wife. I shall have to go into a trance. <laughs> Elvira? Hello. <laughs> I haven't the foggiest idea how to send her back. You're in trouble now. She's dangerous, Charles. You're the one I love. True love never dies. Something must have gone hideously wrong. I can feel it in my base chakra. Probably trapped wind. So we're in 1930s England and crime novelist Charles, played by Stevens, is struck by writer's block. So, of course he does, he turns to a medium, played by Dench, who unexpectedly summons up the ghost of his first wife, played by Leslie Mann, and she gives Charles the inspiration he craves, but causes supernatural friction with his new, exasperated wife, Ruth, played by the lovely Isla Fisher. This has been made several times, um, most famously the David Lean version 
Uh, and it's based on, of course, the Noel Coward play. There's a lot of Coward uh, stories would be about. There's mortality, there's creativity, there's comedy, and there's a hint of sex. And this has sort of been brought up to date in a way that feels, I don't know, downtown Abbey-ish. The the film works due to a a nice performance by Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens, if you'd have asked me a few years ago, would have made uh, an interesting choice for Bond. But as he's progressed as an actor, and I loved his work in Legion, I see it even less in him now. Because I think he's he's a good-looking guy who is a better character actor. Yeah. Isla Fisher just brings that element of comedy that she always does, and she pounces, and she uh, has a, a cutlass accent, which is authentic, but it's not much of a role. Dench is silly, which is great to see Judy Dench being silly. Uh, and Leslie Mann, who is completely over the top as the, the, his first wife, uh, Elvira, just uh, has enough to do and has probably the juiciest role in the entire film. And while it's nice and while it's fun, and it does hang together in that sort of uh, 1930s decor and chic costumes. It, it doesn't have much going to it. The effects work is sparse, but that's, that's not important. And it feels, because of that, a little bit stagey. It just doesn't move. It feels diluted. And if this was a cocktail, it would, it would be missing that dramatic uh, and, and spicy twist that it really, really feels that it needs. You enjoy it, but it's very, very forgettable, even while you're watching it. But if you really want to see something that's completely unassuming and give you a couple of giggles rather than huge outbilly laughs, and, and you want something that's, that's neat and tame, then perhaps Blythe Spirit is for you. And that's on Sky Cinema as we speak. I've got my eye on getting around to watching that, mainly, primarily for the cast. And you, you saying that Judy Dench gets to be a bit silly in it. I think, yeah, that, that kind of sells it to me because she plays a lot of serious roles. But people forget what a great sense of humor she's actually got. Yeah, and if I, I you know, what and you turned me on to staged, and she, <laughs> and nobody could play herself better than 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 Judy Dench. She's absolutely brilliant in stage. Uh, yeah, so I'll get that watched at some point. So my first film that I'm going to talk about this week is Spree. For all of you out there who don't know me, get ready, because you're about to know me. Hey, I don't see any cops around. Should I blow this next one? I'm Kurt. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. What's up, guys? We're going to inject this right on the label. Does this water have, like, a taste to it? Airtight. Well, watertight. (laughs) If you're not documenting yourself, you just don't exist. (laughs) The mouthfeel on this? otherworldly. What we're doing here is important. We're creating a brand. You're following me, you guys! I'm taking you home. This is not the way to my house, Kurt. Oh, no, not your home. My home. (laughs) 
Now, this film sees Joe Keery, who everyone knows as Steve in Stranger Things, playing the lead role in a glorious slice of sinister fun. He's a wannabe influencer who can't scrape double, double figures on his channel. His desperation for a following leads him to utilize a sinister method to go viral. He uses the taxi from his rideshare sideline, rigs up loads of cameras, and sets about recording the events of his day, with plans to use shock footage of him killing off the passengers. However, as his viewership and subscriber base grows, the new followers don't believe his actions are real because there's too many people doing fake stunt things out there and then being caught out afterwards. And he's still getting called a loser, which provokes him to escalate things more and more. This film was an utter joy. And the joy came not just from Joe Keery, who is absolutely magnificent in a lead role. We've seen what he can do in side roles in Stranger Things and a few other projects. But taking front and centre, he plays a character with a sense of manic desperation to be, to be seen. He wants to be known. And it taps into what you said earlier in the news section about like social media and like, you know, people wanted to be seen. This is the perfect film. Despite the acts that he's committing, you bizarrely want him to get away with it because he's so charismatically fun and engaging as he carries along. Especially with some of the victims that he picks on are shown to be quite vacuous and shallow and wanting to use social media for their own popularity. But the full joy of this film is the usage of the media in which it's it's utilising. So we have hidden camera footage in the car. We have cell phone streams. We have Instagram links. We have occasional cuts to other videos on occasion to make it feel like we are at home watching this on our mobile devices or on our computers, following the events of it. And occasionally when something's mentioned, we click on a link to go and see what they're talking about and watch another side video before going back to the mainstream. We also have the chat that is going on on the social media things between the followers, which obviously only starts off with one or two people because he hasn't got any followers. But as they ramp up, it starts to become a stream of chat that you can't keep up with, but you so want to read every little bit of it that you can. And this is making me want to rewatch it again so I can dig down into what's being said, what information is being passed through those chat things. It's a film that, similar to how like I mentioned, the host used Zoom perfectly as the medium this uses instagram and social streaming as the medium as part of the character of the film there's bloody moments but the frenetic pacing of the film doesn't linger too much on it so even if you've got a bit of a squeamish stomach and you're not good with gore you don't have to worry too much because the blood when it splatters is over and out the way pretty quick it's got a solid energy from start to finish and it was an absolute riot to watch i had so much fun watching this and it will be one that I will go back and watch again. Fun film, and that's Spree. You can catch this on Netflix at this point in time. Okay, I'm going to quickly mention, and I know it came out several months ago, and it was a, it caused a big stir on uh, on the film file because at that point uh, it felt like Disney had really shafted uh, cinema, and uh, to some extent they they did, <laughs> um, <laughs> as uh, as. Uh, as, as history has, uh, has, has proven right. And this is the live-action version of Mulan. And it's really just a, um, a quick overview of it rather than an in-depth review. As you know, it was uh, a live-action version of the animated film. And it was that attempt by Disney to, to claim some of their uh, previous library and, and bring something new to it. And they do. It's a film that that's that's really well cast and got got some some glorious acting in it. 
It's a film that feels traditionally Chinese, even though I know that there was some some charges laid against it by by the Chinese who felt that it it was a kind of a re-education of of some of their culture. But I, I enjoyed it. It feels very, very slight. I mean, and if you didn't know the story, if, if, it's, uh, if you never did get to see it, it's a girl disguised herself as a male warrior to join the Imperial Army in order to prevent her sick father from being forced to enlist as he has no male heirs. And, and that's really it. It's got a great cast. Lou Yifei plays Mulan. Uh, Jason Scott Lee, who we've not seen in an, or, uh, an awful long time. Uh, Jet Li and Donnie Yen all make an appearance on it. It makes me think that Disney didn't have a lot of faith in it, and I believe that's why they brought it out. This is purely uh, my interpretation of the situation. It feels a bit like a TV movie. The action sequences look good, but it feels very confined. It's a bit somber. It's a bit humorless. doesn't live up to the animated film, which isn't a particularly a masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But... It's as though they decided to make a film that felt authentic, but to take away a sense of fun about it. Uh, and because of that, I really do believe that, that while it has some, some great messages and shows a, a, an inspirational female lead, that it just falls a little bit short of what it intended to do. I, can't, I think I agree with what you're saying on there. It's not a bad film. No, it's not bad at all. When I watched it, I was entertained. And I enjoyed what I was watching. But I, I do wonder, would it have impacted more had I seen it on a big screen? Because I think some of the set pieces were spectacular. Yes. Yeah, they were. There were some, you know, the, the fight choreography sequences uh, were very down to earth. And I think that was the problem. Apart from the effect of the, the Phoenix and, and, and the witch character, it felt a little bit too ordinary. It felt yes. a little bit too down to earth. Uh, and maybe what it missed was a talking dragon. Which... You know, a lot of people would have loved to have seen um, a lot of the negativity that was thrown towards the film was because they changed it to, to allegedly make it more real, but then they made it mythical. So they could have had a talking dragon in there. What else have you got for us, Andy? I've got a couple of films that I want to run through very quickly. Now, the first one is Songbird. You, If you regular listeners to the show, will know that we spoke about this last year when it went into production because it was the first film that went into production shooting in LA during the lockdown last summer. And it was one that had a really good concept. It was set in 2023 and the COVID virus has mutated further and further. And now the new strain COVID-23 is a lot more deadly. People are entirely locked down. Military compounds are set up for those who've been in contact with people who are infected to be taken to. And immune folk serve as delivery, sanitation and the, the core people to keep the world moving. Lots of great concepts within there. But the execution of this film ends up just being a generic tale of love as someone who's trapped inside their apartment loves one of the delivery people who's immune. And then it just plays out with the conventions that you expected from just any film, not really drawing upon the COVID aspect at all, not really making use of the environment, the political and social aspects that it could have done. And it's just very, very mundane. Not only is it mundane, but it's been edited by someone who's got an attention span of about two seconds. Because if you think that the Bourne films were bad when it had shaky camera and really swift editing and cutting like 15 different shots within a 10-second 10, 10 period, you haven't seen anything until you've watched hyperactive editing 
during this film. On dialogue sequences, while two people are talking, it cuts backwards and forwards every second, and it cuts to the same person in four different angles for no reason. The film also assumes that the audience are too dumb to see past huge gaping plot holes and contrivances. For example, there's a scene in which a two-bedroom apartment is being searched, and it's somehow large enough a two-bedroom apartment for someone to knock out one of the people searching it, steal their clothes, escape whilst carrying a dead body out with another person who's in the protective suits, and drive away before the guy she's ambushed is found, laid out in the living room. That's not the worst contrivance either. It's a sad shame of a film, because the political and social questions it could have raised had promise. But sadly, just like the virus that we're facing, this needs to be put into lockdown or vaccinated against. Avoid Songbird. I'm not even going to tell you what streaming channel it's on because it doesn't deserve to be known. You see, I thought this was uh, directed by Michael Bay, but it's only produced by him, isn't it? It's directed yeah. by somebody called Adam Mason. I'm not a fan of Michael Bay's direction, but his production company have generally delivered some really good films with interesting concepts. I mean, Platinum Dunes, which is Bay's production company, were behind the Purge series and they're also behind A Quiet Place. So they always have good concepts and they generally tend to deliver on those concepts whereas this one is a good concept really shoddily done it feels like it's been rushed to get out more than anything else and that's where the problem is i'll I'll be skipping that one then andy and we've also got outside the wire we talked about this on the show a few weeks ago i sat down and watched this and this was the film that we we mentioned again in the news a few months ago when we said anthony mackie was going to be in a netflix film and this is that film a drone pilot played by damson idris disobeys a direct order and is sent into the war zone where he's paired up with a top secret android officer played by Anthony Mackie. And they're sent on a mission to stop a nuclear attack. What follows is a mentor and rookie film, which whilst visually great and packing some solid action moments, is yet another Netflix high action concept that needed maybe a little trimming and a bit more character. Did you ever watch Training Day and think, man, I wish they'd remake this with a cyborg and set it in the future. Um, no, I've never actually, Andy, I've never, ever thought that, but it seems somebody has, has kind of preempted you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've watched Training Day, you've watched Outside the Wire, just without the special effects. The, don't get me wrong, the two leads are great. Damson Idris is really marvellous, giving credibility to the journey of his cold drone pilot, who's so used to sitting on the other side of the world and killing people with remote control like it's a video game who's now facing real warfare face-to-face and starts to get a new perspective on the lives that he's basically just been blowing up, he starts to open up emotionally. And on the flip side, you've got the android Mackie, who's wisecracking in emotes more than most humans, whose journey becomes colder as it goes along. And that juxtaposition of their roles could have worked so well if the rest of the film wasn't so mundane and generic around them. It's a pure middle-of-the-road action film from Netflix who haven't quite tapped that action potential yet. The creative freedom that they give to filmmakers approach, maybe that's the flaw. Maybe they're giving them too much freedom and they need to just be reined in a bit. Maybe they just haven't got the right people yet. But when it comes to action films, Netflix don't quite deliver. It's when they come to their dramas that Netflix are really strong. I'm going to agree with you entirely on that, Andy. I think apart from really extraction, uh, even though I did like Old Guard, it still felt a little bit a little bit too pedestrian. Extraction's yeah. probably been about the one that that felt like it could have easily been a a big cinematic release. All that said, it's worth seeing, but just don't expect anything more than just an average outing. So, with them out the way, we need to get round to the main talking piece 
of this week. Yes, so you you can't avoid it because a we've been talking about it for months on the show. It finally landed on Disney Plus. It's the first of Marvel Cinematic Universe's TV releases, and of course, we are talking about One Division. Vision. Unusual couple. We don't have a song or even wedding rings. Oh, we could rather do that. I do. Do you? I do. This place. And they lived happily ever after. Oh, this is gonna be a gas. It's it's important to note that it's not the first MCU series. It's the first MCU specific series that directly feeds in and out of the films. The Netflix films were tenuously linked to the series, but they were their own thing. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. bounces off elements of the films, but it's its own thing. This is a core aspect of the MCU. Aspects that are going to be brought into this series are going to have an impact on the MCU films going forwards. I'm assuming that everyone's seen it. uh, And if you haven't, we're not going to give anything away because there's certainly at this stage not an awful lot to give away. The series is structured like a sitcom. Uh, and for the first half of the of the show, you would be uh, mistaken for thinking that you are watching a 1950s sitcom, a very much in the Mary Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke kind of approach in episode one. You know, they are, Wanda and uh, the Vision are an idealized suburban couple living in idealized suburban lives, except they've got superpowers and they have no memory of why they're there. Episode two. Uh, was definitely a nod to Bewitched, which was a classic 60s series. Purely right down to the credits as well. And there's a hint at the end of the episode, uh, when it moves into colour, that we're going to get a 1970s-based uh, sitcom. Uh, again, I would imagine in the in a similar mode to, to Bewitched. There are elements of, of something greater going on, but at this stage we don't know what it is. Um, there are elements of whether this world is a construction or it's something else uh, in the town of, of Westview. But as the characters enter into their new life, they encounter more and more television tropes. And the way that, for me, that they played out as sitcoms was the big surprising element. Now, we knew from the, from the trailers that that's what we were getting, but I was, uh, I was absolutely shocked. And, 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 and it threw me that they were, they were almost a typical multi-camera sitcoms from yeah. from those particular periods you know lucille ball uh, mary tyler moore elizabeth montgomery and and uh, uh, uh elizabeth olsen as, as wanda was definitely channeling those those actors in that i grew up watching reruns of i love lucy and bewitched and absolutely loving them and watching these first two episodes it brought back all that love and tapped into that we expected it to be that it would break away from it and show us other bits and pieces going on behind the scenes but we didn't it just focused on it being a sitcom but with little nuggets of information being drip fed 
And that's what sparked my Marvel fan mind to action. I wanted to immediately rewatch and pick apart the details from name drops to symbols to repetitive phrases for the children. Every little touch of detail is placed there for a reason. And I'm loving the mystery of it. I'm loving trying to unravel the mystery. I think I know where it's going. But as I've discovered quite a few times, the MCU plays away from the comic law quite frequently. So I don't know for definite where it's going. Yeah. I've seen people moan that it's weekly, but I think that something like this needs to be weekly. I think we need to have a week between episodes to dissect the story, dissect the elements that we've seen. If this had all landed at the same time and people had binge watched it, it would have been two and a half hours, three hours, you're done, click it off. Oh, now I'll go online and talk about it. And anyone who waits until after 6 p.m. on that Friday night when when they all land would have had it all spoiled for them online. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and I think it, and it, and it ties into the feel of it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, it, this is this is water cooler kind of TV. This is this is stuff that you watch and then you go away and you think about so you can go back and visit again next week and get more information from. It really ties into the sitcom feel. It ties into that nature that it was short little episodes. I have read rumours that some of the later episodes are longer than the half hour because yeah, I've heard that as well. your TV and sitcoms kind of longer as the decades wore on. So it's interesting to see where it's going to go. I had a blast watching it. I thought that Olsen and Bettany were charmingly marvellous throughout. I fell in love with them as a couple. And I I, I would have been happy if the whole series was just done like this because I was having so much fun watching a sitcom with two Marvel characters. But obviously... It's all about the mystery. And we're not going to spoil any of our any mystery by dropping what our thoughts are as to where it's going here because it's unfair to anyone who's not latched onto it yet. Anyone who's not got Disney Plus and not watched it. Guys, subscribe to Disney Plus for this. Yeah, but- it's it's well worth it. And you know, as 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 you said, Andy, it ties into uh the bigger Marvel universe, which maybe means that by the end of it, WandaVision is the villain for the Doctor Strange film. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, pure speculation. It's interestingly, um, we know that the that Vision died in uh, in Infinity War. So is he a construct? Is he an actual character? All those things that have not got past. Apparently, even an, an element like the fact that she's not using her her accent that yeah. she used in in the previous films is is part of the drama. It's not forgotten. Uh, it's not just Americanized for for the fact of telling this story. It's because of whatever the greater mystery is. And those greater mysteries felt very, very, um, very sort of David Lynchian in ways. <laughs> yeah. And um, I did read, the, probably, the, probably the only negative thing that, uh, that I, I read is, would you watch this if it wasn't part of the, the Marvel Universe? So uh, that's an interesting point. The fact that it was presented as a half-hour comedy series was, was interesting enough would have got me engaged. Now, I, I did read on Twitter that some people couldn't understand they were watching and dropped out because they were confused why it was in black and white. Get a life, really? Hashtag if to that one. Um, but it's it's really well done. If you if you know what, what the nods are, and you don't have to, then it, it kind of really, really works as well. You know, uh, Dick Van Dyke, Lucille Ball, all those sorts of things. They played out as perfect sitcoms. But we're getting little nods to something greater with each episode. And, you know, that's why it's great episodic TV because you want to, you want to stick around and find out what that mystery is. And of course, as we move on, it's going to become more and more revealing. 
Um, so, so well done to the first of the new Marvel Universe TV series. Uh, well done to Jack Chafer, who's who's, uh, who's running the show. Very, very, very pleased. Uh, makes me want to see whatever's going to happen uh, with the other shows even more because it felt like it felt like the movies, and it felt like it's felt like they'd done something brand new that they they've never done yeah. before. Well. You always hear it bandied about that, like for, particularly from the people who hate the Marvel films so much that they feel that they need to hate on them so much all the time. That the MCU formula is always the same, and every Marvel project is exactly the same, and it follows this formula, even though they don't. The MCU formula doesn't exist. The films are different. This turns around to anyone who hates and says that everything that Marvel does is the same, and goes, "Okay, explain this. Here you go." Good luck. With regards to the comment that you made about would people watch this if it were, if it didn't have Marvel attached, you could argue that with with anything. Yeah. Would, would people have watched Guardians of the Galaxy if it didn't have the Marvel name? Would people have watched Endgame if it didn't have the Marvel name? People were bought into it already. So, of course, people are watching it because it's got the Marvel tag, but it would have had some of an audience. It just wouldn't have had the audience that it's got. You see it when people say, I don't know what's going on. Uh, you obviously don't read the comics. You don't need to read the comics for this. And you should know by now, like I've said, that the MCU plays away from the comics. Some people have been saying that if you don't read the comics or you're not completely immersed in it, you're not going to get this show. And some people saying that because it's spoofing I Love Lucy and Bewitched, what's that going to mean to kids today? Well, my kids absolutely loved it and they can't wait to see what's going on. They don't know what's going on. They're as baffled as I am, but they can't wait to see it play out. So stop assuming that people are <laughs> hating it for certain reasons. No one's hating it for any reason other than it's just not their cup of tea. Yeah, my, my partner, she's not a, a fan at all of uh, of the MCU. She's seen the odd couple of films. I, I think she enjoyed Black Panther probably more than any out of, else out of them. She doesn't know who, uh, who Wanda and Vision are. But you know what? She was engaged. She was engaged by the mystery. She, she thought it was funny. Uh, she didn't act ask me as i thought she would who's that who's that and who's that as as, as the uh, as uh, as the show went on the only time i think i had to explain anything was the uh second episode because uh, we know not mentioned the the commercial breaks with it <laughs> as well uh, so you had in in the first episode the stark industries uh uh, Toastmate 2000 toaster oven and in this uh in the second episode you got the struker watches <laughs> But uh, the only thing that I, I the, the only time that I, I paused it was to look at the watch where it said Hydra on it. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and me and my kid got that, but but my partner didn't. And you know what? She still enjoyed it. She didn't need to know all those elements to it because I think what they've done is they've created a show that, yes, you will watch it as a, as a Marvel fan, but you can watch it outside of it and to be taken in by it yeah the, the the absolute weirdness and that's what she got out of it so uh huge success can't wait for episode three it has now become a thing in our family that we're going to uh, have our dinner and then watch wandavision and you can't say better than that so before we round off the show let's do my usual look as to what things are keeping my interest on streaming services over this next week that we'll probably talk about next week. So at the moment on BritBox, I'm obsessed with Grange Hill. Yeah, you've gone back to, to the beginnings of the whole Grange Hill world. Yes, season one to four of Grange Hill, which for those who are outside the UK and don't know, it was a TV series for children's TV 
set within a school that was a lot more mature than what you would think you'd get for kids entertainment. Over the whole run of Grange Hill, they covered drug addiction. They covered abuse. They covered teenage pregnancies. They covered really serious topics in a way that soap operas normally tackled. Well, series one to four is what's known as the classic Tucker Jenkins era of the series. And I'm enjoying the revisit. It's, I was expected to go back to it and go, oh, actually, it's not aged very well. But no, it, it still works today. It's still just as engaging. Um, now TV over this next week, King of Staten Island, which is a film that's been on Ooh, my radar for a while. I've that. Really that, do. That's going to be dropping. That's now TV and Sky Cinema. Judd Apatow's film, which is a semi-autobiographical tale of Saturday Night Live's Pete Davidson. So one to look forward to. Netflix. Snowpiercer season two lands early next week, which I'm so looking forward to. Yeah, me too. I enjoyed the first season an awful lot, much was, more than I thought I would. Yeah, I I wasn't a huge fan of the film. I thought that there was a lot oh, of okay. great ideas, but the film didn't have enough time to tell the story. But I wasn't sold that we needed a TV series spin-off of it. But the fact that it wasn't a spin-off, it was a retelling, a re-adaptation, and it's doing its own thing. I was invested in it within the first two episodes. So I can't wait to see this. Yeah, I agree with you totally. That cliffhanger at the end of the first season. Oh, And over on Amazon, there's another film that is currently on there that we're going to talk about next week. And that's One Night in Miami, which is the film which stars Leslie Odom Jr., Kingsley Ben Adir, Eli Gorey, Aldis Hodge, and is directed by Regina King. And it tells the events of the 25th of February, 1964, when Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X all met in Miami and spent the night discussing civil rights and their responsibilities as successful black men. A review is definitely coming next week because I've got this marked as my next film to watch. And fans of Star Trek, Star Trek Lower Decks animated series lands on Amazon this week. Oh, I didn't know that. I've been waiting for that. Uh, I've been I've been waiting through um, Discovery, and um, which started out really strong for me. But, but went off the boil as, as the series progressed, I'm afraid. I thought the middle episodes were a bit, a bit all over the place, but I thought it pulled together nicely for the finale. I'm an episode away from the, from the last episode, so uh, unless it changes my mind, um, started well, like the new direction. But I always get the feeling with Discovery that they, they have a good idea and then they try to sort of figure it out while they're making them rather than at the beginning yeah. of the process. Okay, well, that's Andy's roundup of what's streaming. Uh, so before we go, and we do this every week, we talk about our neat things. What we've watched, seen, heard, played, listened to, you name it, eaten. The list goes on. What's your neat thing over the last week, Andy? So I've, I've mentioned a few times my Audible subscription, and I get me books each month for free as part of my subscription. Well, there's a book that's been on my radar for quite some time, and that's Star Wars from a certain point of view. So I picked up the audio book of that. And this book, if you've never heard of it, is a collection of short stories which look at the side characters from the film saga. Oh, that sounds interesting. And tells their parts in the saga from a certain point of view. Some of them are heartfelt. Some of them are hilarious. Some fill continuity gaps perfectly. There's things like we find out exactly why firing a bolt to destroy an empty escape pod would have been so much hassle. We get stories told from the point of view of Jawas, Sand People. Greedo gets his own little side story. The red droid who blows a modulator at, <laughs> at the Owen Farm. No character is too minor for these stories. And all of them are really good, well-told short stories showing that some of the most minor characters actually had quite a big part to play in the uprising against the Empire. It's marvellous stuff. It's narrated by names such as Neil Patrick Harris, John Hamm, 
Jonathan Davis, Ashley Eckstein, and much more. Well worth picking up either in book format for the simple reading pleasure or, as I'm listening to it, the audio format in which you get special effects and sound effects going on as well. Great. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. My neat thing for this week is uh, Alien Isolation. Before you scream out, yes, I know it came out in 2014, and I have played this uh, when it landed on the PlayStation 3, but I decided I, I wanted to address it. managed to pick up a cheap copy for the PlayStation 4 where it loads much faster. And, and it really is Alien 1.5. It's almost very nearly a perfect sequel to Alien. Um, because it goes back to what made Alien work. Not so much the action-orientated Aliens by Cameron. This is a a true sequel to the Ridley Scott film. Uh, The story is uh, Amanda Ripley, who is the uh, daughter of uh, Alien protagonist Ellen Ripley, as she investigates the disappearance of of her mother. It's a set designed to look like the original uh, Ridley Scott film. It has uh, a great piece of IA with the game that you don't know what the alien is going to do and uh, can certainly outsmart you. So if you get killed by by the alien uh, and you uh, you re- respawn into the into the scene that you're in, the alien is not necessarily going to be where you thought it was. So it's got that entire sense of of, of the atmospherics absolutely spot on. Uh, the gaming itself is fun and first person and and, and is claustrophobic in the way that, that aliens should be. Probably the only thing that's sort of lacking in it, and I think this is the way that games have developed since, since 2014, is it, it just lacks characterization and great dialogue. But as an alien game, it's probably the best one out there. And as uh, in an, an alternative universe, it is the alien sequel that we never got. Uh, and interestingly enough, it's scripted by uh, Dan Abnett, who uh, worked on Guardians of the Galaxy comic book and really created the Guardians of the Galaxy that we know today, which inspired the film and has done lots of sort of sci-fi based uh, comic books. Uh, and he really brings that sensibility to it. So it's it's a great game, a little bit dated, would love to have seen a remastered version, but I'm having an awful lot of fun playing it. And you know what? That's the most important bit for me about any game. Graphics aren't all that important as long as you can immerse yourself within the game itself. I mean, I'm I'm a lover of retro games, so graphics have never been a high priority for me as long as I can have fun. Yeah, it's it's. I just I'm just having a, a real ball playing it, uh, and because of that that quality with the AI, you can play it and play an entirely different game, sort of the second time around. Yeah. That's it for this week. We'll be back with another film file next week. But before we go, I get myself half killed for you and you reward me by stealing my assignments. 